Welcome this morning to Bethany Community Church, both here in the sanctuary across the street of the chapel, also online if you're worshiping with us. We're honored that you have taken this time uh, as we gather together to meet with Christ and consider what God has to say to us. And so please join me. We'll pray together and then we'll look at Psalm 23. Verse 1b, the second half of verse 1, uh, we're going through a series, a verse a week, and, and this is the last time we're only going to deal with half a verse. The rest of the time, it'll be a whole verse every week leading up to Easter. But to, today, a simple phrase, actually, I lack nothing. Simple but profound. Please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that we're granted the privilege of gathering within these walls to listen for your voice, and we would just take a pause now and... Uh, Invite your Holy Spirit to speak to each one of us, mindful that we live in a world uh, filled with anxiety and uncertainty and fear and anger. Would you so fill us, so ravish us with your love that we are able to uh, live out from your life as people of hope and peace. So take us there, we pray, Father, and we'll thank you for the adventure of that journey, praying in Christ's name, amen. As we consider this profound phrase, I lack nothing, we start by thinking like flying above civilization, basically, and looking at two kind of major schools of thought regarding how we get on in the world, one uh, of which comes from the East and is largely uh, articulated with a goal of emptiness. If you've heard the word nirvana before or uh, the desire to reach enlightenment, enlightenment is articulated in this, in this Eastern model often as a, as a state of emptiness. And so when we meditate, we empty our mind and we seek to live uh, as, as light as possible with as few possessions as possible because the kind of the goal over here is to avoid anything that would stress us out. And so people are seeking this, this state of emptiness. And the problem with this model, to be blunt, is A, it's very difficult to live a life so insulated, so empty, that we avoid all stress. It's just about impossible. And B, even to the extent that we succeed, there's a nagging question among f f friends that I know who kind of follow this Eastern path. And the nagging question is, is this really actually enough? Is it really enough just to live without any stress, or am I made for something more? So even to the extent that I reach the goal, I'm not sure if it is the right goal. That's a problem over here in the East. Now, if, we, if, if I move to the West, there was a book uh, written uh, some time ago uh, entitled The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. It was written by Max Weber, sociologist, by many considered to be like a defining book of explaining how Western culture came to be, and uh, Weber ties the Protestant work ethic to the rise of industrialism and capitalism because there's a teaching predominantly coming from Calvin, but also Luther and other Christians that says, look, if you're, uh, uh, if you're working hard, God will bless you, and the sign of blessing will be material prosperity, and so pr prosperity then becomes this like badge of honor that's a sign that uh, God loves you. And now, if you live in that model, there are all kinds of problems as well. One of which is, like, do I ever have enough? Do, like, how much is enough 
or I can finally relax and say, oh, now I know that God loves me because I have enough. Well, how much, like, how much actually is enough? That becomes a problem. The second thing is this endless pursuit of more and more and more is uh, not good for the environment and it's not good even for your own human body. Like, you can get on a treadmill, so to speak, and many of us hear that language. And so our lives are now lived in hyperdrive with adrenaline and stress and that kind of thing. And then we... we you know, die of a heart attack, or we have all these stress effects. And partly, the rise of Eastern mysticism is a reaction to the deficiency over here, where we go, man, life's too hard, boom, and we drop out, and we move over here into, into a meditation mode. And so, emptiness, not enough. Uh, fullness, not, both not enough and too much, ironically, right? And I hope you're asking the question this morning, is there a third way? Because otherwise, if you're not asking, then just leave now, because I'm articulating the third way for you, right? So there is a third way. And the third way comes from this very profound statement made by David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, and then implied, therefore, because the Lord is my shepherd, listen to this, three simple words, I lack nothing. Now just stop, think about that for a minute. And if you think about it, then you're like this. You know why that's poetic only? There's no way that, that he means that. Because when I look at his life, it was filled with success and failure. And there were times when he was hungry and cold. So surely it's not literal, it's poetic. And here's my response to you. It's more than literal and it's more than poetic. It's truth, okay? Truth is beyond literal, truth is beyond poetic. And if you, if you wanna know what I mean by that, then stay, and I will try and unpack it for you. Three great realities that are articulated here by David uh, in, this, in this simple phrase, I lack nothing. First, we need to understand the context in which it's articulated. So there's a great context, there, and, and uh, then after the great context, there's this reality, this notion of great provision, which leads to the, the great mystery, this declaration, I lack nothing. Great context, uh, great reality of, of provision, and then great mystery. So those three things. Great context. In other words, when David says, I lack nothing, he's speaking of the context of the wilderness. Now, this is very important for us, uh, so, so stay with me here as we think about the wilderness. A, a wilderness is a place where there's a real threat. That's, that's what makes a wilderness a wilderness, right? Like there's something threatening and that's why it's called a wilderness. David was in the uh, Mediterranean desert and deserts have their own unique uh, wilderness expressions. I'm gonna just give you a few of them that I've read about when studying for this. So uh, one man went over there and he spent time with shepherds in various contexts and he went on a hike through the Kidron Valley, which is a place that David would identify with. He says, our chosen route through the Kidron Valley was blistering hot by 10 a.m. and I was dehydrated, nearly fainted in nature's furnace. And then this is how he describes it. Fire all around, fire underneath, fire overhead in the sun. The, the pail of thirst has no rope. It was awful. Now, listen, if you grew up here in Seattle, you have no idea what this is talking about because you're, like, you are weather wimps if you grew up in Seattle. This, you don't know cold and you don't know hot. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the Central Valley of California and I can tell you I know hot. I, this, like, this rings true to me. When I was a kid, my uh, grandfather, uh, uh, he grew grapes and he, he was a teetotaler, so it wasn't to make wine, it was to make raisins. 
So one of my fun jobs as a kid was to go out and pick uh, grapes and lay them out on trays between the rows of grapes so that the sun would kill them, right? Like they would just dehydrate, they'd shrivel up, they'd shrivel up and dry up, and then that, that's what you put in your cereal and your oatmeal cookies and stuff like that, is those raisins. But I was the guy taking the grapes off, and, and then you're putting them on an aluminum tray so that the heat is intensified, right? You don't, it's not enough that it's 110 outside. We want to double that now and have it you know, blow back this way. So I hated the heat. And you'd always carry a big pail of water with you. Uh, heat's a thing in the desert. And sheep die uh, from uh, heat exposure. Also, in most desert environments, when wintertime rolls around, it's, it's got the biggest temperature spreads of anywhere in the world. Like temperatures can drop 80 degrees at night in the winter. So shepherds are sleeping in these tents and they're shivering, but the cold can kill sheep as well. In the, in the uh, summer of 1945-46, Algerian shepherds lost half their flocks to hypothermia because it got so cold at night, they'd wake up and the sheep would be dead. Drought's another problem, but we won't look at that this week because next week we're talking about streams of water and all that stuff. So we'll look at that next week. Hampson is something, it's, it's this seasonal phenomenon, which is this wind that picks up and that kicks up in the desert. And it's a sand hurricane. And it can blow for days and even weeks. And it, like if you've ever sandblasted your house, imagine like your face getting sandblasted for a week. And then you understand like grains and specks that lash the face, parch the throat, sap the strength, and, and don't you love, one author says, and destroy one's soul. I mean, it's psychologically difficult to, to be in that. The rising dust blinds the eyes, and uh, animals wander in lost confusion. And then, the other thing about the wilderness, the desert in particular, although it's true in the forests up here as well, in the Cascades, is the landscape heightens the danger because it looks both familiar and unfamiliar at every turn. So you, you may not know the desert, but if you go hiking around here, uh, I have this experience with friends who hike with me sometimes. They go, where are we? And, I, and I, if I've been before, I know, I go, well, why do you ask? They go, because it all looks the same. It's like a fir tree everywhere. No reference point beyond, I'm in the thick of the forest. How, how do you know where you are? And that's a, a, like a psychological anxiety. So wilderness then, for, for when David is talking here about wilderness, he's talking about untamed land, unfamiliar land, and if it's untamed and unfamiliar, hence it's threatening. Now, here's a bit of a wild card. Familiarity then becomes a variable as to the degree uh, to which a land is wilderness. If you're familiar with it, it doesn't seem wild to you. If you're unfamiliar, it seems wild. Uh, I have taught in the past at Montana Wilderness School of the Bible, and uh, for years, I would, I would jog out into the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is this giant wilderness that is kind of the crest of the Rockies in Montana. So I'd just go out for a run, a couple miles out, a couple miles back, and then, after I'd been teaching for four or five years and been doing this, someone says to me, oh, you, do you run alone out there? And I go, yeah. And they go, well, you know, it's grizzly bear country. And I go, uh, I used to run alone out there, but I'm not, <laughs> you know it. <laughs> I'm, not running, I'm not running anymore there. Like for me, that's super unfamiliar territory. And then the very next year I came, uh, one of the staff 
shared experience of being out there and uh, getting treed by a grizzly bear, like a, a grizzly bear chased him and he ran up a tree and waited it out and then when the grizzly left, he ran home. Like, I don't need that, right? <laughs> so I like, okay, I'll do a Stairmaster or whatever I have to do. I'm not going out there where there's those bears. That's for me, that's wild country, right? And so when you're in wilderness, watch, here's what happens. You're like, your adrenaline system kicks in, your sympathetic nervous system kicks in, your pulse rate goes up, uh, and, and it, so it's stressful. Unfamiliar wilderness is stress. So far, so good? So that's an observation. Like unfamiliar wilderness, it creates stress. And then if you're uh, like many of you are, would be this way, you, you, your response in this moment would be, oh, well, good thing we live in the city then because we're like we're immune. Ah, no, you're not immune actually. Here's the deal. I have bad news and good news. The bad news for you urban dwellers, and I'm one too, at least half time. Uh, the bad news is this. Wilderness people are actually healthier people. Like we need a dose of stress in our lives. It's good for us. Our, our, we're strengthened by adapting to the realities of heat, cold, hunger, drought, predators. Uh, and, and so uh, a, a dose of like, you, we don't want no stress, that's the East, right? And we don't want hyper stress, that's the West. But a dose of stress is good. In the, and in the wilderness, there's a, you get a dose of stress. You always do, right? Wherever, like when you're, when you're out, it's stress. I'll go, I go out on mountain runs sometimes and, and uh, I get involved in like some scrambling on rock and things like that where you just know it's okay, only don't fall. Like every step is a life and death step and I don't mind that, but you really do have to pay attention. Like you can't be you know, listening to iTunes and thinking about problems or something. You just, you're all in. That's actually healthy, right? And, and now, here, so... Bad news, like that dose of stress, we all need a little bit of that, and wilderness people have it. The good news is, wilderness is not just literal here in this text, it's a metaphor as well. Because hear me, any unfamiliar place, that's wilderness. You have the same response in your body, physiologically and spiritually, it's wilderness. So, divorce is wilderness. Somebody coming out on their sexuality, wilderness. Breakup, move, job change, health scare, car accident, death of a parent, death of a child. Infertility, abuse, work injustice, challenges, financial stresses, unemployment, wilderness. I'm going to quote from a book, actually a book I wrote, so, but I like the quote, so I'm going to give it to you anyway. <laughs> this is what it says. This wise author once said, literal wild places aren't needed to appreciate what God is doing in wild places because anywhere you've, quote, never been before, unquote, is functionally a wild place. Uh, that makes the first day of university, or a new job, or an unemployment line, or uh, that child fresh from the womb, or the oncology ward, or divorce court, they're all wild places, just as wild as Sinai, right? So we all face wilderness, both literal and metaphorical wilderness experiences, and it, it, when you face a literal wilderness, it equips you for the metaphorical wilderness, and vice versa. So I'm not being dismissive of physical wilderness here. David faced great physical wilderness uh, and great metaphorical wilderness, and both were valuable. David knew the desert, knew the mountains, knew the rivers, knew sleeping under the stars, knew fighting bears by hand, knew cold, knew heat, knew hunger. He knew all of this. And this is actually good because he, he didn't view creation 
as like props on the stage in which he was just learning spiritual stuff. Creation is teaching him as well. Does this make sense? Like, like my environment is not just a stage on which spiritual transformation is happening. God is actually speaking through the environment. Psalm 19, heaven is declaring the, the glory of God. Psalm 103, the beautiful hydration cycle, reminding of God's provision. Romans 10, Romans 1, over and over again we see this. Uh, God is desiring to reveal himself through wilderness experience. So this is one of the reasons we have a wilderness ministry at Bethany. This is one of the reasons that um, many cultures have done for, you know, generations, rites of passage, where you leave the confines of your familiar environment, you go into the unfamiliar environment. It's one of the reasons that it's a, it's a thing that I want to see happen in our own community here. So th that's good. And in the meantime, walk Green Lake. Or sit and listen to the birds. Um, go out into your garden and get your hands dirty. Come to my place and split wood. I'll show you how. It's great. But pay attention is the point to creation, do you see? But not just physical wilderness, more significant for our time this morning, great metaphorical wilderness. David faced wilderness. What do you mean? Oh, you know, uh, when he was anointed as king, as the youngest, his brothers suddenly all hated him. And then uh, when he said he'd fight the giant Goliath, again, his older brother said, why the young guy? He faced the rejection of the existing king, Saul, who told him he couldn't fight the giant, he was too young. He faced the anger of Goliath the giant, who was insulted that this was the best guy that Israel could choose to, to fight. He faced the jealousy of King Saul, who, who tried to assassinate David numerous times, forcing David to, to live in hiding in caves. Uh, he faced the anger of uh, his, his son later on, who stole the throne from him and, and ran him out of town. He faced the anger of the prophet who confronted him for his sin uh, when he faced the reality of his own low point in his life, his low point being this kind of realization. Somebody holds up the mirror and he sees, oh, I'm an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, uh, and, and, and I abuse my power to uh, bed a woman. I mean, this is David. It's all wilderness, right? So um, he learned from each of these situations. He wanted to learn and did learn from each situation. And I, listen, I'm convinced that's what makes David a man after God's own heart. Like he wanted to, like bring it on. I'm gonna learn. I'm gonna learn from hunger. I'm gonna learn from living in a cave. I'm gonna learn from my catastrophic failure of adultery and lying and murder. What, like we'd kick him out of the church today. What, like, why is he a man after God's own heart? Here's why. Because in his brokenness, he's, like, he's open to transformation and confession and agreeing with God that this was heinous sin and, and restoration. Wow. But it all happened where? The wilderness. Like this unforeseen territory. So we need to learn here how to kind of have an attitude that welcomes wilderness experiences. And this is very hard for us because we, it's, it's culturally bred into us that, you know, comfort and, you know, climate-controlled environments and never being hungry, that's the goal. So now we resist wilderness at least subconsciously. And, and we do that to our, to our loss because transferred to the New Testament and James 1 says this, when you encounter wilderness, only James calls it trials, right? James 1, when you encounter various trials, consider what, does anyone know? NIV translation, pure joy. 
Pure joy when you encounter trials. Who has that attitude? Like, well, if we can see that like wilderness experiences, the unforeseen in my life, the unwelcome unforeseen, will produce in me something good, then I can welcome it. Um, there might be some of us in the room who take cold showers. I don't know if there's anyone in the room who does, but there might be some of us. There might be one preaching who takes cold showers once in a while. And, and the thing is, um, that's offensive to your body when the cold water hits your body. It's just offensive. Like, what am I doing this for? Why is this happening to me? But with the flick of a wrist, I can be in like comfort zone and it's perfect. What's going on? And then I, I learned from a guy, uh, because I was curious about this, like, how do you do this? And he says, you know, when the cold water hits you, this is what you really need to do. You need to say, literally out loud, you need to say, welcome cold, and allow this cold water to hit you. You say it a few times, welcome cold. And I will tell you uh, that without saying welcome cold, aloud, when this water hits me, I begin to shiver, and I go, I hate this, and then I turn the warm water on. When I say welcome cold, you know what happens to me? Like, I relax, and the cold water begins to hit me, and here's, actually, it's physiological. You know, it's not, not, not the point this morning, but like, suddenly your immune system kicks in at a higher level, and you're, your, your heart rate variability goes up, which is a good thing. Your pulse goes down, which is a good thing. So now my wife hears it every day, like I'm in the shower, and she hears this. Welcome, cold. <laughs> there it is. I wonder if we could kind of do this, right? Welcome, wilderness. Like, no, no, it's not that I want cancer. It's not that I want unemployment. Any more than I want cold water. I don't want cold water. I want what cold water produces. And James tells us to want what trials produce. So I can say, I can say welcome in this sense. Not like, so glad you're here, but thank you, Lord, that this wilderness experience is going to produce in me things that will enable me to better represent the heart of Jesus. That's the whole goal of your life. So we can learn to welcome the wild places. And one of the great privileges that we who pastor have is to, you know, walk with people through cancer, through marriage implosion, through unemployment, through crossroad decisions, and have people look back retrospectively and say, man, I am so glad that that happened to me. Why? Because of what God produced in me through it. That's the deal. Not that it ha nobody wants the thing. It's that, it's that the wilderness experience creates in us a robustness of faith and intimacy with Jesus. That's the goal. So David knew great wilderness, and the wilderness was then the context in which David knew great provision. Because it's the wilderness experiences of our lives that, that that's the moment when I, when I have a need, do you see? Like even if I use the cold shower now again as a metaphor or like cheesy illustration, I go, as soon as I, the water's cold, I want the warmth. I didn't want the warmth when I had the warmth. I want the warmth when I don't have the warmth. Do you see? And so, so when you read Deuteronomy 8, and for time I'll paraphrase this morning, but when you read Deuteronomy 8, this is what you discover. Um, God says, hey, Israel, remember when you wandered around through the wilderness, what happened? I let you be hungry so that I could, what, give you bread. 
I let you be thirsty so that I could give you water. What, I mean, it, come on, this is God. He could, have, he could have had water available at every resting point along the way. He, God did not choose to do that. Instead, Israel arrives, they're thirsty, and then in their thirst, God provides water. In their hunger, God provides uh, food. In their cold, God provides warmth. In their uh, crossroads, God provides guidance. So God says in Deuteronomy 8, when you are no longer in the wilderness, be careful. Why? Because when you're not in the wilderness, uh, you, you cease to live in relation with God as provider, and you're in a very dangerous place. So, so God says, Deuteronomy 8, 14, 15, 16, remember when you were hungry and I fed you. Remember when you were cold and I gave you warmth. Remember, remember, remember. Why? Because in your non-wilderness moments, you still need the same kind of faith if you will display Christ. So, so remember that God's always been the provider in the city, in the country. When you're full, when you're hungry. Uh, and, and, and so, but to learn those lessons that God is your provider. Like, I, I'll need to be hungry sometimes and thirsty and cold and lonely. And here's the thing. It's at my point of deepest need that, that I've learned some element of God's character and that element becomes most significant to me. Like, every one of us in the room have a different experience. For some, sickness. And I know God is my healer. That's very powerful. For others, loneliness, the death of my dad when I'm 17, and I know God as my best friend, and it is the most important aspect of God's character for me, do you see? And so the beauty of the, uh, of, of the body of Christ is every one of us have a different story. Every one of us have a different place of vulnerability, and it's precisely at my place of vulnerability that God meets me and reveals God as the one meeting that particular need. I'm your shelter, I'm your friend, I'm your healer, I'm your provider, I'm, 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 I'm your companion, I'm your restorer. I am exactly who you need me to be, I, I'm enough. This is a big deal. And this is what David is musing on when he says, I lack nothing. Exactly where I needed five rocks, there were five rocks. Exactly where I needed um, the grace to confess, the Holy Spirit convicted me and I confessed. Exactly where I needed guidance, there was guidance. Exactly when I needed humility, there was humility. I, God has given me everything I've needed. Now this is huge, but it's not even the whole point of, of uh, God as provider. Because here's the other thing. Uh, Jesus in John 6, and I'm paraphrasing, he said to people who were following him because he'd multiplied loaves of bread, he said, listen, I'm not a bakery, all right? Like if the only reason you're following me is because I quote unquote meet your needs, it's, not, it's inadequate. He says, uh, I want to be for you, the, not only the, the one who meets your needs, but, but I want to be the source of your transformation. Do you see? So that you then end up living into your destiny. And if, you, if every one of us have a destiny in this room, and we do, Ephesians 2.8 says that all of us are created to do good works, to bless the world. If every one of us has a destiny, here's the other thing about God as provider. God is saying to all of us in the room, I will provide everything that you need to fulfill your destiny. Do you see? And so whatever it is that you need to become the person that God had in mind when he made you, God will provide that for you. And so we can look back, each one of us, 
uh, retrospectively on our own stories, in a sense, our own testimony. And when I look back and I go, oh, if God had a destiny for me to declare God's word through teaching, uh, like I'm not this guy who was at seven years old saying, I want to be a preacher. You've heard Billy Graham's stuff this week, and you know that he used to preach to the rakes and the shovels in the barn. Not me, right? I had a skateboard and a baseball bat and, you know, a surfboard or whatever. I had my stuff, but it was, <laughs> preaching was not in the cards. And then, and then I can look back and say, oh, you know what God has done? And I have these moments, these markers. Oh, this thing, hearing this guy speak, reading this guy's book, something awakening in me, desire to go to seminary, blah, 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 blah. It's just a long, long story. But the point is this, I can look back and say, God was reeling me in, man, like I would not be doing this were it not for God. Does this make sense? And, and this is, should not be a preaching story. This is an Amazon story. This is a mission story. This is a, this is a marriage story. This is your story. All I have needed, great is thy faithfulness, is this beautiful song. All I've needed, thy hand is provided. Wow. What does that mean? Oh, you know, I was hungry one day and, and some bread showed up on the doorstep. Yeah, good, but much more. You, you need more than bread. You need a calling. <laughs> and God provides it. That's what David's saying. Like when he became king, he was like this. Really? Me? <laughs> Look what God has done. Look what God has done. And God wants to write a story in you that is that amazing. And then this leads us to the kind of the conclusion here, this great mystery, I lack nothing. And we really need to take a look at this because it can't possibly mean what it appears to mean on the surface, right? David knew cold, so he lacked warmth. David knew hunger, so he lacked food. David knew assassination attempts, so he lacked uh, security when he was sleeping in a cave. David knew rejection from his son, so he lacked intimacy and trust. Uh, so what does I lack nothing mean? Well, it, it, look, it means that God has so shaped David that he is able to live like with a sense of perfect contentment that, hear me, come what may, God is going to be enough. This is very, very important. Come what may, God is going to be enough. I mean, many of us in the room, uh, uh, we know this in theory, but uh, many of us have a place of vulnerability where uh, functionally we don't believe that God is enough. My place of vulnerability historically has been anxiety, and the anxiety has historically presented itself most clearly for me. I mean, I remember when we lived in Friday Harbor, the, like I hated traveling by ferry because I didn't want to wait I wanted to make the ferry. And now why I obsessed about that, I don't know. But I had to make the ferry, and this was at a period in history when there was no you know, cell phones where you could look and see how many people are in line, or there's no reservations. Like you had to, you had, some of you know, like you had to go and hope for the best. And oh, so we thought, like we're going to Anacortes. Hey, should we stop at Safeway? And I'd be like this, no, we gotta make the ferry. And here's Donna. Yeah, but you know what? We actually need uh, food. Like, it would be good to eat when we get home. No, 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 fair, you know, go. And then, we, you know, we get, to the, we get there, and already there's a big line for the 6 p.m. ferry. Next ferry, 10.30. Big line. And I'd be like, oh, 
So what? We're going to make it. We're going to make it. And I'm, I'm, like, my pulse is racing. Like, what's the worst that could happen if you didn't make it? Well, I don't know, but it felt like thermonuclear war to me. Like, if we don't make it, <laughs> the world is over. Like, this was hard for me. And so, so my presenting problem, anxiety. Oh, yeah, God's enough if I make the ferry. God's enough if I get out of the mountains without putting chains on yesterday. Same weird anxiety. Donna says to me yesterday, because it's dumping snow and I got to get here, and I'm packing, must leave now <laughs> before chains required. I'm not even using sentences. It's that bad, right? Like, <laughs> got to get out of here. Oh, no, can we sit and talk? No, got to go. And Donna said yesterday, this reminds me of like the fairies all over again. <laughs> oh, yeah. God's enough as long as um, things go the way I want them to go. No, here's what David's saying. God's enough, come what may. That's pretty powerful. And it actually is, ironically, biblical, <laughs> right? Matthew 6, Jesus says, hey, seek my kingdom. I'm going to take care of you. You have everything you need. Psalm 73, whom have I known but you? Having you, I desire nothing else on earth. Listen, our perception as Western people is this. If I have physical sustenance and security, that's my baseline. I must have those things. And so we, like, we live our lives thinking that that's the baseline. I'm going to just say to you, it's, not, it's actually not the baseline because you can't even promise yourself actually that. How do I know? Well, I read history, Right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, dead at 36. Sophie Sol dead at 23. Dachau, whatever. And even if, we, even, if, even if we avoid, you know, all the minefields of loss and die of old age, we die of old age. And we, there's a day that comes when we don't want water anymore and we don't want food anymore. I watched my mom die. So... Listen, we need a little reality check here. You think this is baseline? No. David's saying there's something even more baseline than baseline. And the thing that's even more baseline is this. Like, come what may. If the, this is David. You know, if the islands drop into the ocean, if the mountains are all leveled, if there's thermonuclear war, if, if there's 10 more school shootings in a week, uh, there's something more important. What, would, what could that possibly be? Well, in Psalm 42, 7, there's a verse that says, deep calls to deep. And some of you know it, some of you don't. But here's what it means. Like, if you've said yes to Christ, then here's the reality. Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, he lives in you. Christ lives in you. And Christ in you is, is longing for fellowship with God the Father in the same way that Christ longed for fellowship when Christ walked on the earth. So Christ in you is calling out for this, this union with God the creator, right? There's like deep, there's something deep in me and it's calling out for God. And the beauty of Psalm 42 is this, deep calls to deep and when deep calls, deep answers. And listen, when, when Christ calls out for this union and God answers, then do you know what happens to me? Physiologically, Pulse drops, blood pressure drops, breathing rate drops, and then I'm like this. Do you know what? Christ is enough. And I don't say it because it's the right answer. 
I say it because I've been ravished and I believe it. Christ is enough. This is why Jesus snuck away to the wilderness, actually. Because the, the wilderness untamed was a, was a constant reminder to him uh, that God is the provider of everything we need. I've always, since I've been in ministry for 30 years, I've always had a place, like a physical place that I go when I get overwhelmed. And in the moment that that place is at the back of our property, there's a little creek and, and I go and I literally sit under a bridge across that creek. I'm not a troll, I just sit under the bridge. <laughs> but I sit there and I think about the water that comes down the mountain. And it snowed, and then there's this water here in July was snow in March, and now this water's coming. And I think about, where's this water gonna go? Oh, that's right, to the Yakima River. Oh, then the Columbia River. Oh, then Astoria down in Oregon. Oh, and then those same, that same water will, will uh, in the mystery of God's provision, rise into the air, and those water molecules will condense when it hits cold air and become a cloud, and then the wind, the beautiful westerly winds, that is our planet, will blow those clouds up against the cascades and then they will fall again as rain and snow. And this, will, this has been going on for 10 billion years and we're worried about unemployment. And I, I sit there and I think about that and sometimes it brings tears to my eyes because I'm like this, do you know what? I have everything I need because I have a creator who's watching, watching over everything. Yeah. I'm in the wilderness, the wilderness of anxiety, the wilderness of uncertainty, the wilderness of loss, the wilderness of decision, but I have enough. That's what David's saying. We're gonna pray this way in closing. On the inhale, silently, the Lord is my shepherd. On the exhale, I lack nothing. Think about your wilderness for a minute and then take a minute of meditation and then we'll close in worship.